From the K-Rob Collection, this is Audio Antiques, featuring programs from the golden age of American radio. I'm Ken Robinson. On this edition, history comes alive with Richard Nixon being interviewed by British journalist David Frost. This was a major news event, with Nixon emerging from seclusion after spending more than two years away from public life when he became the first U.S. president to resign from office due to the Watergate scandal. Nixon granted Frost an exclusive series of interviews with the premiere episode attracting 45 million viewers, the largest television audience for a political interview in history. It resulted in both a play and a movie about the event. We'll hear the first of the four interviews as aired on the Mutual Radio Network the evening of May 4, 1977. Why not join thousands of stock market traders who make informed decisions thanks to the premium features of Finviz Elite? They receive robust, real-time stock quotes, pre-market and after-market data, advanced visualizations, backtesting, along with much more. Finviz Elite has one of the best stock screeners in the business, plus profitability research on 100 technical indicators. Finviz Elite is also packed with 24 years of historical statistics and numerous custom filters to help you sort it all out. Receive email notifications about important events, portfolio changes, and stock ratings, all within an ad-free interface at a price everyone can afford. Get full details about Finviz Elite at krobcollection.com. If you're tired of outrageously expensive cell phone bills, come on over to Mint Mobile. Talk, text, and data plans start at just $15 a month. There are no contracts. Sign up, and Mint will send you a SIM card. Just insert it into your phone. You can even keep your old number. Get details at krobcollection.com and start saving today with Mint Mobile. The Mutual Broadcasting System, the world's largest radio network, is proud to present the first of four historic interviews by David Frost with the 37th President of the United States, Richard Milhouse Nixon. This program is being broadcast simultaneously on radio and television in the United States, Canada, and throughout much of the free world. Now, David Frost. Richard Nixon came to office with big ambitions, with ambitions to bring together a country divided by a war abroad, with ambitions to end that war, and with ambitions to encourage a more stable and peaceful world through negotiation. Six years later, he left office in the least dignified manner of any president ever, after the most dramatic fall in American political history. Why? What went wrong with the Nixon presidency? How did the grand design get mixed up with domestic abuses great and petty? In 
In future programs, we'll be examining some of the former president's actions that are well regarded, as well as testing his account of those actions at home and abroad, which were highly controversial. But tonight, we start where the president's political career ended, with Watergate, seeking some of the answers that Americans have wanted to hear for more than three years. The questions, incidentally, tonight and throughout this series were not known by the former president in advance, who also had no control of content or editing. Richard Nixon and Watergate in just a moment. All across the nation, we see and hear the continuing American Revolution. It is the willingness of Americans to work together to solve problems, to work to see better schools and neighborhoods, to make life better for the disadvantaged. A special bicentennial program, Horizons on Display, honors 200 community-based projects, each one an innovative response to a local problem or need. Learn more. Write Horizons on Display, Box 1976, Washington, D.C. The Mutual Radio Network will present roundtable discussion, analysis, and comment on this evening's David Frost interview with former President Richard Nixon. Immediately following this historic event, the discussion will be hosted by former Meet the Press moderator Lawrence Spivak. Joining Mr. Spivak will be journalist Jack Anderson and Jeffrey St. John. Join us for this lively and thought-provoking discussion immediately following this Nixon Frost interview. You're listening to History in the Making as David Frost interviews former President Richard M. Nixon on the trials and tribulations of Watergate, an exclusive feature from the Mutual Radio Network. Tomorrow, over many of these same stations, Mutual presents yet another exclusive special with the highlights from this Watergate interview with former President Richard Nixon. Check your local listings for time. Highlights of the Nixon-Frost-Watergate interview from Mutual. On the night of June the 17th, 1972, that five men were arrested breaking into the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington, D.C. It turned out later that the break-in had involved such key Nixon supporters as Howard Hunt and Gordon Liddy, and had been planned by the President's own re-election committee, headed by former Attorney General John Mitchell and his assistant, Jeb Magruder. Bob Haldeman, the President's Chief of Staff, was with Mr. Nixon in Florida when the break-in occurred. They returned to the White House on June the 19th, and they met on a number of occasions during the next few days. Two meetings are regarded as key. The first occurred on the morning of June the 20th and included a discussion of Watergate. A White House tape of that discussion was later found to have been erased, the famous 18 and a half minute gap. The President met again with Haldeman on June 23. In that conversation, Mr. Nixon is told that the FBI is moving into problem areas in its Watergate probe. Haldeman suggests, and Nixon agrees, that the CIA be instructed to ask the FBI not to proceed any further with its investigation of the burglary. Mr. President, to try and review your account of Watergate uh, in one program, this is a daunting task, but uh, we'll press, first of all, through the sort of factual record and the sequence of events as, as concisely as we can to begin with. Um, but just one brief uh, preliminary question. Um, reviewing now your conduct over the whole of the 
Watergate period. Um, with the additional perspective now, three years out of office and so on. Do you feel that you ever obstructed justice or were part of a conspiracy to obstruct justice? Well, in answer to that question, I think that the uh, best procedure would be for us to do exactly what you're going to do in this program, uh, to go through the whole record in which I will uh, say what I did, uh, what my motives were, uh, and uh, then I will uh, give you my evaluation as to uh, whether those actions or uh, anything I said, for that matter, uh, amounted to what you have called an obstruction uh, of justice. Uh, I will express an opinion on it, but I think what we should do is to go over it, uh, the whole matter, so that uh, our viewers will have an opportunity to know what we are talking about. Uh, uh, so that in effect, uh, they, as they listen, uh, will be able to hear the facts uh, and make up their own minds. I'll express my own opinion. They may have a different opinion. You may have a different opinion. Uh, but that is really the best way to do it, rather than to preclude it in advance and maybe prejudice their viewpoint. I'm very happy to do that, because I think the only way really to examine all of these events is on a... Uh blow-by-blow blow account of, of, of what occurred. So beginning with June 20 then, um, what did Holderman tell you during the 18 and a half minute gap? Holderman's notes uh, are the only recollection I have of what he told me. Holderman was a, a very good note-taker uh, because of course we've had other opportunities to look at his notes and he was very he was making the notes for my presidential files. The notes indicated... PR offensive. That's right. Well, of course. Uh, they, the Diversion. notes... Were, well, you've asked me what it was. My recollection was that the notes... So, check the EOB to see whether or not it's bugged. Obviously, I was concerned about whether or not the other side was bugging us. Uh, I went on to say, uh, let's get a public relations offensive on what the other side is doing in this area and so forth. Uh, and in effect, uh, uh, don't uh, allow uh, the uh, Democratic opposition uh, build this up uh, into basically a, a blow it up into a big political issue. Those were the concerns expressed. And I have no recollection of the conversation except that. But as far as your general state of knowledge, um, that evening uh, when you were talking with... Uh, Chuck Colson on the evening of the, June the 20th. Um, it suggests that from somewhere your knowledge has gone much further. You say, if we didn't know better, we'd have thought the whole thing had been deliberately botched. Colson tells you, Bob is pulling it all together. Thus far, I think we've done the right things to date. And you say, uh, basic, he says basically they're all pretty hardline guys uh, and you say you mean Hunt and, he say, and you say of course we're just going to leave this where it is with the Cubans at times I just stonewall it and you also say we've got to have lawyers smart enough to have our people delay now somewhere you were pretty well informed by that conversation on June 20th as far as my information on June 20th is concerned, uh, 
Uh, I had been informed uh, by, with regard to the possibility of Hunt's involvement. Uh, whether I knew on the 20th or the 21st or 22nd, I knew something I learned in that period about the possibility of Liddy's involvement. Uh, of course, I knew about the Cubans and McCord, who were all picked up at the scene of the crime. Uh, now, uh, you have read here uh, excerpts out of a conversation with Colson. Uh, and let me say, as far as what my motive was concerned, and that's the important thing, my motive was in everything I was saying, or certainly thinking at the time, uh, uh, was not uh, to try to cover up uh, a criminal action, but to be sure that as far as any slip-over, or should I say slop-over, I think would be a better word, any slop-over in a way that would uh, uh, damage innocent people or blow it into political proportions, it was that that I certainly wanted to avoid. So you invented the CIA thing on the 23rd as a cover? No. Now, let's, let's use the word cover-up, though, in the sense that it ha should be used and should not be used. If a cover-up is for the purpose of covering up criminal activities, it is illegal. If, however, a cover-up, as you have called it, is for a motive that is not criminal, that is something else again. And my motive was not criminal. I didn't believe that we were covering any criminal activities. Uh, I didn't believe that John Mitchell was involved. Uh, I didn't believe uh, that, uh, for that matter, anybody else was. I was trying to contain it politically. And that's a very different motive from the motive of attempting to cover up criminal activities of an individual. And so there was no cover-up of any criminal activities. That was not my motive. But surely in all you've just said, you have proved exactly that that was the case, that there was a cover-up of criminal activity. Because you've already said, and the record shows, that you knew uh, that Hunt and Liddy were involved. You'd been told that Hunt and Liddy were involved. At the moment when you told the CIA to tell the FBI to stop, period, as you put it. At that point, only five people had been arrested. Liddy was not even under suspicion. And so you knew in terms of intent, and you knew in terms of foreseeable consequence, uh, that the result would be that, in fact, criminals would be protected. Hunt and Liddy, who were criminally liable, would be protected. You knew about them. The whole statement says that uh, uh, we, we're going to... Holderman says, we don't want you to go any further on it. Get them to stop. They don't need to pursue it. They've already got their case. Walter's notes that he said five suspects had been arrested, this should be sufficient. You said, tell them, don't go any further into this case, period. By definition, by what you said and by what the record shows, that per se was a conspiracy to obstruct justice because you were limiting it to five people when even if we grant the point that you weren't sure about Mitchell, you already knew about Hunt and Liddy and had talked about both. No. So that is obstruction of justice, no, just a moment. period. Uh, that's your conclusion. It is. Uh, but now let's look at the facts. 
the fact is that as far as Lydia was concerned, uh, what I knew wa was only the fact that uh, he was the man on the committee uh, who was in charge of intelligence operations. As far as Hunter was, was concerned, uh, and if you read that tape, you will find I told them to tell the FBI uh, they didn't know, apparently, and the CIA that Hunt was involved. Uh, and so there wasn't any, any attempt uh, to uh, keep them from knowing that Hunt was involved. The other important point to bear in mind when you ask what happened and so forth is that what happened two weeks later? Uh, two weeks later, uh, when uh, I was here in San Clemente, I called uh, uh, Pat Gray, uh, the then FBI director on the phone, to congratulate the FBI on a very successful uh, operation they had in apprehending some hijackers in San Francisco or, or someplace abroad. He then brought up the subject uh, of the Watergate investigation. He said that there are some people around you who are mortally wounding you or would might mortally wound you because they're trying to restrict this investigation and i said uh, well have you talked to walters about this matter and i said yes they said does he agree he said yes i said well pat i know him had known him very well of course from over the years i did call him by his first name i said pat you go right ahead with your investigation. Uh, he has so testified, and he did go ahead with the yeah, investigation. But, but the point is that obstruction of justice is obstruction of justice if it's for a minute or five minutes, much less for the period June 23rd to July the 5th, when I think was when he talked to Walters and decided to go ahead the day before he spoke to you on July the 6th. It, it, it's obstruction of justice how, for however long a period, isn't it? And also, it's no defense to say that the plan failed, that the CIA didn't go along with it, refused to go along with it, said it was transparent. I mean, if I try and rob a bank and fail, that's no defense. I still tried to rob a bank. I would say you still tried to obstruct justice and succeeded for that period. He's testified they didn't interview Agario, they didn't do all of this. And so I would have said it was a successful attempt to obstruct justice for that brief period. Now, just a moment. Uh, you're again making the case, which of course is your responsibility as the attorney for the prosecution. Uh, let me make the case as it should be made, uh, even if I were not the one uh, who was involved uh, for the defense. Uh, the case for the defense here is this. You use the term obstruction of justice. Uh, you perhaps have not read the statute with regard to respect, uh, 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 obstruction of justice. Well, obstruction, well, uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry, of course you probably have read it, but possibly you might have missed it because when I read it uh, many years ago, and uh, uh, perhaps when I was studying law, if uh, although the statute didn't even exist then because it's a relatively new statute, as you know. Uh, but in any event, uh, when I read it even in recent times, uh, I was not familiar with all of the implications of it. The statute doesn't require just an act. The statute has the specific provision. One must corruptly impede a judicial... Well, you, a corrupt matter. endeavor is enough. A con co All right. Was a conduct an endeavor. Corrupt intent. But it must be corrupt.
And that gets to the point of motive. One must have a corrupt motive. Now, I did not have a corrupt motive. But you, you were, my motive was pure political containment. And political containment is not a corrupt motive. But if so, for example, we, President Truman would have been impeached. Yeah, but the point is that, the point is that your motive can be helpful when intent is not clear. Your intent is absolutely clear. It's stated again. Stop this investigation here, period. The foreseeable, inevitable consequence, if you'd been successful, would have been that Hunt and Liddy would not have been brought to justice. How can that not be a conspiracy to object? obstruct justice. No. Wait a minute. Stop. You would have yeah. protected Stop the, Hunt and Liddy from Stop. guilt. Stop the investigation. Uh, uh, you still have to get back to the point that I have made uh, previously, that, when I, that, uh, uh, that my concern there, which was conveyed to them, and the decision then was in their hands, uh, my concern was having the investigation spread further than it needed to. Well, and as far as that was concerned, uh, I don't believe, as I said, we turned over the fact that we knew that Hunt was involved, that the possibility that Liddy was involved, uh, but under the circumstances... You didn't turn that over, though. What? You didn't turn that no, over. No, 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 no. We turned over the fact that Hunt, that, that, yeah. that Hunt was involved. You never told uh, anyone about involved. Liddy, though. No, not at that point. I'm Carl Tucker, president of Saturday Review. Here are some big stories you won't want to miss in upcoming issues. On June 11th, our cover story asks, has the Nixon-Burger Supreme Court abandoned the Constitution? And what about the controversial Equal Rights Amendment? In our June 25th issue, Roger Williams writes, even more than abortion, the ERA pits woman against woman in numbers never before experienced in the United States. Saturday Review's annual mid-year business report in July probes why American firms get clobbered for handing out payoffs in countries where bribery is a way of life. Biggest news of all is that you can take advantage of Saturday Review's special introductory half-price offer. Only $9.75 for a full year. Call this toll-free number right now. 800-247-2160. 800-247-2160. To subscribe to Saturday Review for a full year at half-price. Only 975. Call now. 800-247-2160. Hi, this is Jim Backus with a personal tip on how to spend your income tax refund. Invest in comfort, a genuine lazy boy reclining chair. Enjoy your tax refund for many years to come. Recline in Lazy Boy's luxury beauty and enjoy the long-lasting construction. You can depend on Lazy Boy's quality. Folks, with Father's Day coming, it's a perfect gift, too. Lazy Boy, it's the best investment you can make. Yes, enjoy your tax refund. Purchase a Lazy Boy chair. Looking for a rent-a-car bargain? Call EconoCar, the real bargain in rent-a-cars. EconoCar has bargains for weekends, bargains for weekdays, bargains for when your car is in for repairs. EconoCar has rent-a-car bargains for visiting relatives and bargains when your son claims a family limousine. Whenever you are stuck without a car, don't get stuck renting one. Call EconoCar and drive a real bargain for a change. For EconoCar reservations, call toll-free 800-228-1000. That's 800-228-1000. After the grey, um, after the grey conversation, uh, the cover-up 
went on. Uh, you would say, I think, that you were not aware of it. I, I think, was arguing that you were a part of it as a result of the June the 23rd uh, conversations. But you would say that you... You say I was a part of it as a result of the June 23rd conversations? Yes. Uh, after July 6th when I talked to Gray? I would have said that you joined a conspiracy which you therefore yes. never left. No. Well, then we totally disagree on that. But, I mean, uh, that, that, that's that's, right. those are the that's two right. positions. Now, you, in fact, however, would say that you first learned of the cover-up on March the 21st. Is that right? On March 21st was the date when I was first informed of the fact, the important fact to me in that conversation, uh, was of the blackmail threat that was being made by Howard Hunt, who was one of the Watergate uh, uh, participants, but not about Watergate. So during the period between um, those two dates, between the end of June, beginning of July, and March the 21st, um, while lots of elements of the cover-up, as we now know, were continuing, were you ever made aware of any of them? No. I, I don't know what you're referring to. Well, for instance, the, uh, your personal lawyer, uh, Herbert Kalmbach, coming to Washington to start the raising of uh, $219,000 of hush money, approved by Haldeman and Ehrlichman. They went ahead with that without clearing it with you? That was one of the statements that I've made, uh, which uh, after all uh, the checking we can possibly do, and. Uh, we checked with Haldeman, we checked with Ehrlichman. I wondered, for example, if I had been informed. If I had been informed that money was being raised for humanitarian purposes to help these people with their defense, I would certainly have approved it. If I had been told that the purpose of the money was to raise it for the purpose of keeping them quiet, I would have been disapproved. But the truth of the matter, Rick, is that I was not told. I did not learn of it until the March period. But in that case, if that was the first uh, occasion, um, why did you say in um, such strong terms to uh, Colson on, on uh, February the 14th, which is more than a month before, you said to him, cover-up is the main ingredients. That's where we've got to cut our losses. My losses are to be cut. The president's losses got to be cut on the cover-up deal. Why did I say that? February the 14th. Well, because I read the American papers. And in January, the stories that came out, they're not, not, not just from the Washington Post, the famous series by some unnamed correspondents who have written the best-selling books since then. Uh, but the New York Times, the networks, and so forth, were talking about hush money. They were talking about clemency pay, uh, uh, for cover-up and all the rest. It was that that I was referring to at that point. I was referring to the fact that there was a lot of talk about cover-up and that this must be avoided at all costs. But there's one uh, very clear self-contained quote, and I read the whole of this conversation of February the 13th, which I don't think has ever been published, but and there was one very clear quote in it that I thought was... It hasn't been published, you say? No, I think it's it's available to anybody who consults the records, but oh, uh, but uh, people don't consult all the I records. Just wondering if it. <laughs> well, I'm I'm sure you have, yes. But uh, the, where the president says this on February the 13th, um, 
when I'm speaking about what this is to Colson, when I'm speaking about Watergate, though that's the whole point of the election, this tremendous investigation rests unless one of the seven begins to talk. That's the problem. Now, in that remark, it seems to me that someone running the cover-up couldn't have expressed it more clearly than that, could they? What, what do we mean by one of the seven beginning to talk? I, how many times do I have to tell you uh, that as far as these seven were concerned, uh, the concern that we had, certainly that I had, uh, was that men uh, who uh, worked in this kind of uh, covert activity, men who, of course, uh, realize it's dangerous activity to work in, uh, particularly since it involves illegal entry, uh, that uh, uh, once they're apprehended, uh, they are likely to say anything. Uh, and the question was, I didn't know of anybody at that point, nobody on the White House staff, not John Mitchell, uh, anybody else uh, that I believed uh, was involved uh, criminally. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, I certainly could, could believe that a man like Howard Hunt, who was a prolific uh, book writer, or any one of the others, under the pressures of the moment, uh, could have started blowing and putting out all sorts of stories uh, to embarrass the administration and, as it later turned out in Hunt's case, to blackmail uh, the president to provide clemency or to provide money or both. I still just think, though, that uh, one has to uh, go contrary to the uh, normal, normal usage of language of almost 10,000 gangster movies uh, to interpret uh, this tremendous investigation rests unless, unless one of the seven begins to talk. That's the problem. There's anything other than some sort of conspiracy to stop him talking about something damaging well, you to can, the person you can making state, the speech. You can state your conclusion, and I've stated my view. So now we go on with the rest of it. What President Nixon knew of the cover-up before March the 21st is disputed. But there is no dispute that on March the 21st, John Dean did lay out many of the key elements of the cover-up for the President. Dean recited the history of the break-in and listed the criminal liability of top presidential aides like Haldeman and Ehrlichman and Dean himself for actions which followed the burglary. Dean told the President that hundreds of thousands of dollars had been paid to keep the Watergate burglars silent through their January trial. He said further that with sentencing only two days away, Howard Hunt was now demanding a payment of $120,000 for continued silence. And Dean suggested that the price tag for blackmail could total $1 million. The period following the meeting on March the 21st, up to April the 30th, when Haldeman and Ehrlichman resigned, is crucial. The president would later claim that he worked to get the truth out during this period. His critics would claim that he continued to cover it up. Looking back on the record now, 
of that conversation, as I'm sure you've done. In addition to the overall details, which we'll come to in a minute, um, bearing in mind that a payment probably was set in motion prior to the meeting and was certainly not completed until late the evening of the meeting, um, wouldn't you say that the record of the meeting does show that you endorsed or ratified what was going on with regard to the payment to Hunt? No, the record doesn't show that at all. In fact, uh, the record actually is ambiguous uh, until you get to the end, and then it's quite clear. And what I said the later in the day and what I said the following day shows what uh, the facts really are and completely contradicts the fact, the point that has been made. And uh, again, here's a case where Mr. Jaworski in his book conveniently overlooks uh, what actually was done and what I did say the following day, uh, as well as uh, uh, other aspects of it. Let me say, I did consider the payment of $120,000 to Hunt's lawyer and to Hunt uh, for his attorney's fees and for support. Uh, I considered it not because Hunt was going to blow, using our gangster language here, on Watergate, uh, but because, as the record clearly shows, Dean says, uh, it isn't about Watergate, but it's going to talk about some of the things he's done for Ehrlichman. As far as the payment of the money was concerned, uh, uh, when the total record is read, you will find that uh, uh, it seems to end on a basis which is indecisive. Uh, but I clearly remember, and you undoubtedly have it in your notes there, uh, my saying that the, uh, the White House can't do it, I think, for my, was my last words. Uh, because I had gone through the whole... Uh, scenario with uh, the I laid it out. I said, "Look, what would it? Co I mean, when you're talking about all of these people, what would it cost to uh, take care of them?" For, well, no, for the I mean, I talked about a million dollars, and yeah. I said, "Well, you could raise the money, but doesn't it finally get down to a question of clemency?" And uh, he said, "Yes." I said, "Well, you can't provide clemency, yeah. and that would be wrong for sure." Now, if clemency is the bottom line, then providing the money isn't going to make any sense. But when you, we talk about the money, the 120000 demand that, in fact, he got 75000 of that evening, uh, bearing in mind what, what you were saying earlier about um, reading that, the overall context of the conversation, um, the, is there any doubt when one reads, reading the whole conversation, one, you could get a million dollars and you could get it in cash. I know where it could be gotten. Two, your major guy to keep under control is Hunt. Don't you have... Three, don't you have to handle Hunt's financial situation? Four, let me put it frankly. I, I wonder if that doesn't have to be continued. Five, get the million bucks. It would seem to me that would be worthwhile. Six, don't you agree that you'd better get the Hunt thing? Seven, that's worth it and that's buying time on. So, eight, we should buy the time on that, as I pointed out to John. 
Nine, Hunt has at least got to know this before he's sentenced. Ten, first you've got the Hunt problem. That ought to be handled. Eleven, the money can be provided. Mitchell could provide the way to deliver it. That could be done. See what I mean? Twelve, but let's come back to the money. They were off on something else here, desperate to get away from the money, bored to death with the continual reference to the money. A million dollars and so forth and so on. Let me say that I think you could get that in cash. Thirteen, that's why your immediate thing, you've got no choice with Hunt but 120 or whatever it is, right? 14, would you agree that this is a by-time thing? you better damn well get that done, but fast. 15, now who's going to talk to him? Colson, 16, we have no choice, and so on. Now, reading as you've requested yes, right, the thing fine. in the whole context... Let me, let me just stop you right is... there, right, right there. You're doing something here which I am not doing, and I will not do throughout these broadcasts. You have every right to. Uh, you are reading there, uh, out of context, uh, out of order... Because I have read this, and I know well, it really know better it than you do. I'm sure. Uh, and I should know it better, because I was there. And it's no reflection on you. You know it better than anybody else I know, incidentally, and uh, you're doing it very well. But I am not going to sit here and read the thing back to you. I could have notes here. As you note, I participated on all of these broadcasts without a note in front of me. I've done it all from recollection. I may have made some mistakes, no, I, but not I, many. You, you certainly now, have done say this, and I agree and with Let me say that in this instance, though, in this instance... Uh, the very last thing you read, uh, do you ever have any choice with Hunt? It, why didn't you read the next sentence? Why did you leave it off? Carried on. No, no. The reason the next sentence says, as I remember that so well, but you never have a choice with Hunt. Do you ever have one, rhetorically? You never have a choice with Hunt. Because when you finally come down to it, it gets down to clemency. Now, why, after all of that horror story, and it was, I mean, even considering that, I mean, must horrify people. Why would you consider paying money to somebody who's blackmailing the White House? I've tried to give you my reasons. I was concerned about what he would do. But my point is, after that, why not? Why not you do what was not done by Mr. Jaworski in his book? What was not done? by Mr. Doerr before the Senate Judiciary Committee, read the last sentence. The last sentence which says, after that, do you never have any choice with that? Because it finally All comes right. down to clemency. And I'd said six times in that conversation, you didn't read that in your ten things, six times I said, you can't provide clemency. No, it's I, wrong I never, for I've sure. Never said there you, I never said there that you did provide clemency, nor was I talking about no, the long term. Point is, but my talk, point is that right. without... Let me, let, me is, quote, let me quote to you then. I've been through the record. I want to be totally fair. Have. And let me read to you the last quote on the transcripts that I can find about this matter. Then you said, why didn't I go to the last one? Sure. I read 16 and I, and, uh, and I thought that was enough. But it, we could have read many more, no doubt. But the last thing in the transcripts uh, I can find about this subject was you talking on April the 20th and you were recollecting this meeting and you said that you said to Dean and to Holderman, Christ, turn over any cash we got. That's your recollection of the meeting on April yeah. the 20th when you didn't know you were on television. Of course I didn't know I was on television. On April the 20th, it could well have been my recollection. But my point is, I wonder why, again, we haven't followed up with what happened after the meeting. 
Let me tell you what happened after the meeting. And, and you were, incidentally, very fair to point out, uh, and the record clearly shows, that Dean did not follow up in any way on this. Uh, the payment that was made, Dean didn't know it, I didn't know it, nobody else knew it, apparently was being made contemporaneously yeah. that day to another source. But the next morning, yeah. the next morning, Mitchell told Holderman that it had been paid, yeah. and in the later transcript, uh, you agree with Holderman that he told you. You say, you say yes, you reported that to me. Yes, I understand. Let so you, were, this. you yeah. were very soon yeah. aware it had gone through. That's right, but my point is, the question we have is whether or not the payment was made as a result of a direction given by the president for that purpose. And the point is, it was not. And the point is that the next morning you talk about the conversation, and here again, uh, you probably don't have it on your notes here, but on the 22nd, I raised the whole question of payments, and I said, and I'm compressing it all so that we don't take too much of our time on this. I said, as far as these fellows in jail are concerned, you can help them for humanitarian reasons. But you can't pay, but that hump thing goes too far. That's just damn blackmail. It would have been damn blackmail if Dean had done it. Now that's in the record. And that's certainly an indication that it wasn't paid. extra income to meet rising prices, to supplement your pension, to pay for your next vacation. Well, then consider a part-time or full-time career as a tax consultant. And no, you don't need an accounting or bookkeeping background, and you don't need a year or two of expensive training. The short, inexpensive home study program of the National Tax Training School can start you on your way. And that can mean earning as much as $20 an hour in your spare time. In fact, savings on your own tax return may pay for the course. Approved for veterans training, National Tax Training School is America's only tax consulting school accredited by the National Home Study Council. And right now, the National Tax Training School does not want you to enroll. They want you to read their free literature and then decide for yourself, without salesmen, whether tax work is for you. There's no cost, no obligation. Simply write tax on a postcard and mail to Post Office Box 66, Radio City Station, New York, New York, 10019. And do it today. Looking for a rent-a-car bargain? Call Econocar, the real bargain in rent-a-cars. Econocar has bargains for weekends, bargains for weekdays, bargains for when your car is in for repairs. Econocar has rent-a-car bargains for visiting relatives and bargains when your son claims a family limousine. Whenever you are stuck without a car, don't get stuck renting one. Call Econocar and drive a real bargain for a change. For Econocar reservations, call toll-free 800-228-1000. That's 800-228-1000. Hi, this is Jim Backus for Lazy Boy. You know, today, workmanship and quality seem a thing of the past, but there is still one thing you can count on, a genuine Lazy Boy recliner. Lazy Boy chairs have fine craftsmanship, rugged He-Man construction, and unequaled comfort. America's number one recliner is on sale now for Father's Day at Lazy Boy dealers everywhere. So remember the man in your family. Buy him a Lazy Boy chair, and you tell him, hey, Jim sent you. Later on that day, at some point, 
according to your later words to Holden when you were told that it had been paid. That, I, I agree that I was told that it had been paid. But what I am saying here is that the charge has been made that I directed it and that it was paid as a result of what I uh, said at that meeting. That is, that charge is not true and it's proved by the tapes which in so many cases can be damaging. In this case, they're well, helpful. I think, well, there's two things to be said to that. One is, I think that the, the, the my reading of the tapes tell, tells me, trying to read it in an open-minded way, that, uh, that the writing, not just between the lines, but on so many of the lines, as I quoted, is very, very clear that you were, in fact, endorsing at least the short-term solution of paying this sum of money to buy time. That would be my reading of it. But the, the other point to be said is, here's Dean talking about this hush money for Hunt talking about blackmail mm -hmm. and all of that I would say that you endorsed or ratified it but let's leave that on one side I didn't endorse or ratify why didn't you stop it because at that point I had nothing to no knowledge of the fact that it was going to be paid I had no knowledge of the fact that uh, the what you have mentioned in the transcript of the next day where Mitchell said he thought it had been taken care of. I think uh, that was what the words were, words to that effect. I wasn't there. I didn't, I don't remember what he said. I was, that was only reported to me. Uh, the point that I make is this. It's possible, it's a mistake that I didn't stop it. The point that I make is that I did consider it. I've told you that I considered it. Uh, I considered it for reasons that I thought were very good ones. Uh, I would not consider it uh, for uh, the other reasons which would have been, in my view, bad ones. But that night, though, the night of the 21st, I mean, in the conversation with Colston after you'd been exchanging dialogue about getting off the reservation and so on, uh, Colston said to you something about the fact that it's the stuff after the cover-up. I don't care about the people involved in the cover-up, it's the stuff after that's dangerous, Dean and other things, and the things that have been done. And you said, as I'm sure you know, uh, you mean with regard to the defendants. Of course, that was, that had to be done brackets, laughs, whatever that means. But I mean, so that night you were saying that had to be done. You were realizing that doing something for the defendants was a necessity. No, I don't interpret that that way at all. Uh, I, uh, I, I, How do you recall that? I can't recall that conversation uh, and I can't vouch for the, the accuracy of the transcription on that. Uh, but I do say that's uh, absolutely the tapes that have been made public on the 22nd uh, with regard to my and the one on the 21st as well uh, with regard to the whole payments problem uh, I think are very clear with regard to my attitude but on the short term point that was uh, an exhibit and uh, uh, part of the uh basic file at the trial was that conversation Colson saying it's the stuff after that's dangerous and you saying you mean with regard to the defendants of course that was that had to be done brackets laughs I mean that's absolutely on the record and uh, 
authenticated and, and played publicly. Yes. Well, I can't interpret it at this time. Have you ever secretly dreamed about being a writer? Dreamed about writing as a career, as a freelancer, or just dreamed and wished that you could write and communicate all the things you've always wanted to say? Well, there's a home study school that has been helping people like you for more than 50 years. There aren't many schools that can make that statement. Writers Institute, a division of Newspaper Institute, has been training many thousands to write for more than 50 years. Some have gone on to write books and short stories and to earn second incomes. And others are just happy people because they can express themselves better. Do you have what it takes to be a writer? Send for the free writer's aptitude test. There's no obligation, no pressure, no salespeople. Everything is up to you. If you are serious about wanting to write, here's your chance to see if you can. Send for the free writer's aptitude tests. Send name and address to Writers Institute, Post Office Box 1776, Radio City Station, New York, New York, 10019. Honey, there's the AMC salesman. Tell him we've made our choice. We've made our choice. Ah, the Pacer with air. The Pacer. The Hornet with air. Ah, uh, the Hornet. I still like that Matador. The Matador. Announcing American Motors All-American Giveaway. Buy any new Pacer, Gremlin, Hornet, or Matador with factory air and get your choice of $400 in travel on American Airlines to the Caribbean, Mexico, New York, L.A., or any of American's exciting destinations, or $400 in accommodations at any Americana hotel, or $400 in American tourist or very light luggage. Your choice. Our choice? Oh, the luggage. The luggage. No, no, the air travel. The travel. The hotel. The hotel. Okay, the hotel. Which card do you want? Oh, the Matador. The Gremlin. American Motors All-American Giveaway. Good on models with factory air delivered between April 11th and June 10th, 1977 or ordered by May 10th. See your AMC dealer for details. One of the other things that people find very difficult to take in the Oval Office on March the 21st is the is the coaching that you gave um, Dean and Haldeman on how to deal with a grand jury without getting caught and saying that perjury is a tough rap to prove as you'd said earlier just be damn sure you say I don't remember I can't recall is that the sort of conversation that ought to have been going on in the Oval Office, do you think? I think that kind of advice is proper advice for one who, as I was at that time, uh, beginning to put myself in the position of a attorney for the defense. Uh, something that I wish I hadn't uh, had the res felt I had the responsibility to, uh, to do. Uh, but I would like the opportunity when the question arises to tell you why I felt as deeply as I did on that point. Uh, every lawyer, uh, when he talks to a witness who's going before a grand jury, says, be sure that you don't volunteer anything. Be sure if you have any question about anything, say that you don't recollect. Be sure that everything that you state only the facts that you're absolutely sure of. Uh, now, on the other hand, I didn't tell them to say, uh, don't forget if you do remember. 
that then would be suborning perjury. But the, and I did not say that. One of the things you repeated uh, many times, but I suppose most memorably or most clearly on uh, August the uh, 15th, 1973, you said, if anyone at the White House or high up in my campaign had been involved in wrongdoing of any kind, I wanted the White House to take the lead in making that known. On March the 21st, I instructed Dean to write a complete report of all that he knew on the entire Watergate matter. Now, when one looks through the, the record of what had gone on uh, just before and after March the 21st, um, on March the 17th, uh, the written statement from Dean, you asked for a self-serving goddamn statement denying culpability of principal figures. When he told you that the original Liddy plan had involved bugging, uh, you told him to omit that fact in his document and state it was for, the plan was for a totally legal intelligence operation. March 20th, as I'm sure you know, you said you want a complete statement, but make it very incomplete. Uh, on March 21st, after his revelations to you, uh, you say, understand, I don't want to get all that goddamn specific. And Ehrlichman and you, when you're talking on the 22nd, and he's talking the Dean report, he says, and the report says nobody was involved. And there's several other quotes to the effect. Um, was that the Dean report that you described it wasn't the same as what you described on August 15th, was it? Well, what you're leaving out, of course, which is in that same tape that you just quoted from, is a very, very significant statement. I said that John Dean should make a report. And I said, We've, we have to have a statement. And then I went on to say, and if it opens doors, let it open doors. Now, with regard to the report being complete, but incomplete, uh, what I meant was this, very simply. Uh, I meant that he should state what he was sure of, what he knew, because one day he would say one day thing, another day he'd say something else. I didn't want him to answer, and you'll find that also in one of the tapes. I said, don't go into every charge that has been made. Uh, go into only what you know, and particularly go in hard on the fact which he had consistently repeated over and over again, no one in the White House is involved. That's what I wanted him to do. But then you have a discussion in the meeting with Holderman, Ellen, and Mitchell Dean, um, where you're deciding what the policy is going to be. Is it going to be a hangout, i.e., is it going to be the whole of the truth? And in the end, it's decided that it's going to be one of the great phrases of Watergate, a modified, limited hangout, which is why I suggest the other quotes that I've quoted to you are decisive. And then Ellen goes on to say, I'm looking at the future. Now, we've already known it's a modified, limited hangout, and you, you can't have a modified, limited version of the truth. I mean, it's obviously not going to be the whole of the truth. I am looking at the future, assuming some corner of this thing comes unstuck at some time. You, that's you, are in a position to say, look, that document I published is the document I relied on. That is the report I relied on. And uh, you respond, that's right. 
Now, you've decided the document's going to be modified, it's going to be limited, and then you're going to rely on that document, and so you're going to better blame it on Dean. And it seems to me that that is consistent with all the quotes that I have quoted, and not the one door quote that you've quoted. That's your opinion, and I have my opinion. Uh, Dean was sent to write a report. Uh, he worked on it, uh, and uh, he certainly would have remembered a, a, a phrase that was, let me say, uh, a lot more easy to understand than modified hangout, or whatever Ehrlichman said. Uh, he would remember, if it opens doors, it opens doors. I meant by that I was prepared to hear the worst as well as the good. This is the world's largest radio network, the Mutual Broadcasting System. You are in the midst of one of the most significant events in broadcasting history. The first of four 90-minute specials featuring David Frost interviewing former President Richard M. Nixon, a network radio exclusive from the Mutual Broadcasting System. This evening's broadcast concerns Richard Nixon's Waterloo, Watergate. For the first time in almost three years, the 37th President of the United States breaks his public silence and speaks his mind concerning the complexities and confusion surrounding Watergate. He confronts the past with candid thoughts on the break-in, the cover-up, the White House bugging system, and the 18-and-a-half-minute gap. This is truly an historic occasion, and the Mutual Radio Network will present an exclusive and complete rebroadcast of this evening's landmark program, Richard Nixon and Watergate, on Sunday, May 8th, which can be heard over many of these same stations. It's history in the making from Mutual. I don't understand about March the 21st is that I still don't know why you didn't pick up the phone and tell the cops. I still don't know when you found about the things that Holderman and Ehrlichman had done that there is no evidence anywhere of a rebuke but only of scenarios and excuses etc. Nowhere do you say we must get this in information direct to whoever it is, the head of the uh, Justice Department criminal investigation or whatever. And nowhere do you say to Holderman and Ehrlichman, this is disgraceful conduct and Holderman admits a lot of it the next day so you're not relying on Dean, you're fired. Well, could I take my time now to, to address that question? Hmm. Uh, I, I think it will be very uh, useful to you know what I what I was going through uh, it wasn't a very easy time uh, I think uh, my daughter Tricia once said that uh, there really wasn't a happy time uh, in the White House except in a personal sense uh, after April 30th when Alderman Erdogan left you know it's rather difficult to tell you four years later how you felt but I think you'd like to know something new you see I had been through a, a very difficult period when uh, President Eisenhower had the Adams problem and I'll never forget the agony he went through 
So here was Adams, a man that had gone through the heart attack with him, a man that had gone through the stroke with him, a man that had gone through the Eliadis with him, a man who had been totally selfless, but he was caught up in a web. Uh, guilty? I don't know. Uh, I consider Adams then to be an honest man in his heart. Uh, he did have some misjudgment, uh, but in any event, uh, finally, Eisenhower decided, after months of indecision on it, and he stood up for him in press conferences over and over again, and Haggerty did, he decided he had to go. You know who did it? I did it. Eisenhower called me in and asked me to talk to Sherm. And so, here was the situation I was faced with. Who's going to talk to these men? What can we do about it? Well, first, let me say that I didn't have anybody that could talk to them but me. I couldn't have Agnew talk to them because uh, they didn't get along well with him. Bill Rogers wasn't happy with them either. And so uh, not having a vice president or anybody else and Haldeman, my chief of staff himself, being one involved, the only man that could talk to him was me. Now, when I did talk to them, it was one of the most, uh, I would say, difficult periods, heart-rending, hard to use the adjectives that are adequate, experiences of my life. I never forget when I heard that uh, on April 15 from Henry Peterson that uh, they ought to resign, and Kleindies thought they ought to resign, and it took me two weeks. I frankly agreed, incidentally, in my own mind that they had to go on the basis of the evidence that had been presented. Uh, but I didn't tell them that at that point. Uh, I, when I say I agreed with it, uh, I didn't uh, fully reach that conclusion because I still wanted to give them a chance to survive. I didn't want to have them sacked as Eisenhower sacked Adams then have Adam, and Adams goes off to New Hampshire and runs a ski lodge and is never prosecuted for anything. Sacked because of misjudgment, yes. Uh, mistakes, yes. Uh, but uh, an illegal act uh, with an immoral, uh, illegal motive, no. That's what I feel about Adams. That's the way I felt about these men at that time. Now let me tell you what happened. I remember Henry Peterson coming in on that Sunday afternoon. Uh, came in off his boat. Uh, he apologized he, uh, for being in his uh, uh, sneakers and pair of blue jeans and so forth. But it was very important to give me the update on what had, the developments that had occurred up to April 15th. And he said, he gave me a piece of paper indicating that they had knowledge of Haldeman's participation in the $350,000, and they had knowledge of Ehrlichman's participation in ordering, or what they indicated that Ehrlichman had, had uh, told Hunt to deep, uh, had told uh, uh, the uh, Gray to deep six, six some papers, and so forth and so on. And he said, Mr. President, these men have got to resign. You've got to fire them. And I said to him, 
I said, but Henry, I can't fire men simply on the basis of charges. Uh, they've got to have their day in court. Uh, they've got to have a chance to prove their innocence. Uh, I've got to see more than this uh, because uh, they claim that they're not guilty. And uh, Henry Peterson, very uncharacteristically good because he's very respectful. He's a, a Democrat, career civil service, splendid man. Sat back in his chair and he said, you know, Mr. President, what you've just said, that you can't fire a man simply on the basis of charges that have been made, or the fact that they, that their continued service will be embarrassing to you. You've got to have proof before you do that. He said, that speaks very well for you as a man. It doesn't speak well for you as a president. And in retrospect, I guess he was right. So it took me two weeks to work it out. Tortuous, long sessions. You got hours and hours of talks with them, which they resisted. We don't need to go through all that agony. Then I remember the day at Camp David when they came up. Haldeman came in first. He's standing as he usually does. <laughs> Not a dramatic... Nazi stormtrooper, but just a decent, respected, crew-cut guy. That's the way Haldeman was. Splendid man. And uh, he says, I disagree with your decision totally. He said, I think it's going eventually, you're going to live to regret it, but I will. Ehrlichman then came in. I knew that Ehrlichman was bitter because he felt very strongly he shouldn't resign. Although he'd even indicated that Haldeman should go and maybe he should stay. And I took Ehrlichman out on the porch at Aspen. You've never been to Aspen, I suppose. That's the presidential cabin at Camp David. And it was springtime. The tulips had just come out. I never forget. We looked out across. It was one of those gorgeous days when the, you know, no clouds were on the mountain. And I was pretty emotionally wrought up. And I remember that I could just hardly bring myself to tell Arlington that he had to go because I knew he was going to resist it. I said, you know, John, when I went to bed last night, he said, I hoped, I said, I hoped, I almost prayed I wouldn't wake up this morning. Well, it's an emotional moment. I think there were tears in her eyes, both of us. He said, don't say that. We went back in. They agreed to leave. And so it was late, but I did it. I cut off one arm, then cut off the other arm. Now, I can be faulted. I recognize it. Maybe I defended them too long. Maybe I tried to help them too much. But I was concerned about them. I was concerned about their families. I felt that they and their hearts felt they were not guilty. I felt they ought to have a chance at least to prove that they were not guilty. And I didn't want to be in the position 
of just sawing them off in that way. And I suppose you could sum it all up uh, the way one of your British prime ministers summed it up, Gladstone, when he said that the first requirement for a prime minister is to be a good butcher. Well, I think the great story as far as summary of Watergate is concerned, I, uh, I did some of the big things rather well. I screwed up terribly on what was a little thing and became a big thing, but I will have to admit I wasn't a good butcher. Hi, this is Jim Backus for Lazy Boy. You know today workmanship and quality seem a thing of the past, but there is still one thing you can count on, a genuine Lazy Boy recliner. Lazy Boy chairs have fine craftsmanship, rugged He-Man construction, and unequaled comfort. America's number one recliner is on sale now for Father's Day at Lazy Boy dealers everywhere. So remember the man in your family. Buy him a Lazy Boy chair. And you tell him, hey, Jim sent you. Looking for a rent-a-car bargain? Call Econocar, the real bargain in rent-a-cars. Econocar has bargains for weekends, bargains for weekdays, bargains for when your car is in for repairs. Econocar has rent-a-car bargains for visiting relatives and bargains when your son claims a family limousine. Whenever you are stuck without a car, don't get stuck renting one. Call Econocar and drive a real bargain for a change. For Econocar reservations, call toll-free 800-228-1000. When times get rough, some people try any get-rich-quick scheme to make ends meet. But extra income doesn't come from fancy schemes. Realistic people start small, often with a business or service that can be run from home and apply themselves to supplement their income. Typical of this approach is tax consulting. Earning up to $20 an hour, tax consultants enjoy a high demand for their services year-round especially from January to April when almost everyone needs tax help. Learning to be a tax consultant doesn't take long, and it isn't difficult when you use the methods of the National Tax Training School. You need no previous bookkeeping or accounting experience. You learn at home in your spare time. National Tax Training School, approved for veterans training and by the National Home Study Council, wants you to have all the facts so you can make an informed decision on your own. Write tax in care of Post Office Box 66, Radio City Station, New York, New York, 10019. Would you go further than mistakes? That you've explained how you got caught up in this thing. You can ex you've explained your motives. I don't want to quibble about any of that. But just coming to the sheer substance, would you go further than mistakes? The word that seems n not enough for people to understand. What word would you express? My goodness, that's a... I think that there are three things, since you asked me... I would like to hear you say, I think the American people would like to hear you say, one is, there was probably more than mistakes. There was wrongdoing, whether it was a crime or not, yes, it may have been a crime too. Secondly, I did... And I'm saying this without questioning the motives, right? I did 
abuse the power I had as president or uh, not fulfill the totality of the oath of office. That, that's the second thing. And thirdly, I put the American people through two years of needless agony and I apologize for that. And I say that, you've explained your motives, I think those are the categories. And I know how difficult it is for anyone and most of all you, but I think that people need to hear it and I think unless you say it, you're going to be haunted for the rest of your life. I well remember uh, that when I let Holloman and Erlingman know that they were to resign, that I had Ray Price bring in the final draft of the speech that I was to make the next night. And I said to him, Ray, I said, if you think I ought to resign, I said, put that in too, because I feel responsible. I, even though I did not feel that I had uh, engaged in these activities consciously, uh, it, it, insofar as the uh, knowledge of or participation in the break-in, the approval of hush money, the approval of uh, clemency, etc., the various charges that have been made. Well, he didn't put it in. And uh, I must say that at that time I seriously considered whether I shouldn't resign. But on the other hand, uh, I feel that I owe it to history uh, to point out that from that time on April 30th, until I resigned on August 9th, I did some things that were good for this country. We had the second and third summits. I think one of the major reasons I stayed in office was my concern about keeping the China initiative, the Soviet initiative, uh, the Vietnam Fragile Peace Agreement, and then an added dividend, the first breakthrough in moving toward not love, but at least not war in the Mideast. And now, coming back to the whole point of uh, whether I should have resigned then and uh, how I feel now, let me say I, I just didn't make mistakes in this period. I think some of my mistakes that uh, I regret most deeply came with the statements that I made afterwards. Uh, some of those statements uh, were misleading. Uh, I noticed, for example, the editor of the Washington Post, the managing editor Ben Bradley, wrote a couple, three months ago, something to the effect that, uh, as far as his newspaper was concerned, he said, we uh, don't print the truth. We print uh, what we know. We print what people tell us. Uh, uh, and uh, this means that we print lies. Uh, I would say that the statements that I made afterwards were on the big issues true, that I was not involved in the matters that I have spoken to about, not involved in the break-in, that I did not 
engage in the and participate in or approve the payment of money or the authorization of clemency, which of course were the essential elements of the cover-up. That was true. Uh, but the statements were misleading and exaggerating in that enormous political attack I was under. Uh, it was a five-front war with the fifth column. Uh, uh, I had a partisan uh, Senate committee staff. We had a partisan uh, special prosecutor staff. Uh, we had a partisan media. We had a partisan judiciary committee staff in the fifth column. Now, under all these circumstances, my reactions and some of the statements and press conferences and so forth after that, I want to say right here and now, I said things that were not true. Most of them were fundamentally true on the big issues, but without going as far as I should have gone and saying perhaps that I had considered other things well, but had not done them. You mean and for all those I mean, things, I have a very deep regret. You got caught up in something yeah. and then it snowballed. It snowballed. And it was my fault. I'm not blaming anybody else. I'm what? simply saying to you that as far as I'm concerned, I not only regret it, I indicated my own beliefs in this matter. Yeah. When I resigned, people didn't think it was enough to admit mistakes. Fine. If they want me to get down and grovel on the floor, no. Never. Uh, because I don't believe I should. Uh, on the other hand, uh, there are some friends who say, just uh, face them down. There was a conspiracy to get you. There may have been. I don't know what the CIA had to do. Some of their shenanigans have yet to be told, according to a book I've read recently. Uh, I don't know uh, what was going on in uh, some Republican, some Democratic circles, as far as the so-called impeachment lobby was concerned. Uh, however, I don't go with the idea that there was that what brought me down was a coup, a conspiracy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I brought myself down. I gave them a sword, and they stuck it in, and they twisted it with relish. And I guess if I had been in their position, I'd have done the same thing. But what I'm really saying is that in addition to the untrue statements that you've mentioned, um, could you just say, uh, with conviction, I mean, not because I want you to say it, that you did do some covering up? We're not talking legalistically now. I just want the facts. I mean, that you did do some covering up, but there were a series of times when maybe overwhelmed by your loyalties or whatever else, but as you look back at the record, you behave partially, protecting your friends, or maybe yourself, and that, in fact, you were, to put it at its most simple, a part of a cover-up at times. No, I, 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 again, I again respectfully will not uh, quibble with you about the use of the terms. However, before using the term, I think it's very important 
for me to make clear what I did not do and what I did do. And then I will answer your question quite directly. Uh, I did not, uh, in the first place, uh, commit a, the crime of obstruction of justice because I did not have the motive required for the commission of that well, crime. We've, we've had our the lawyers can argue that. that. I did not commit, in my view, an impeachable offense. Uh, now, the House has ruled overwhelmingly that I did. Uh, of course, that was only an indictment and it would have to be tried in the Senate. I might have won, I might have lost. But even if I had won in the Senate by a vote or two, I would have been crippled. And in, the, in any event, for six months, the country couldn't afford having the president in the dock in the United States Senate. And there can never be an impeachment in the future in this country without a president voluntarily impeaching himself. I have impeached myself. That speaks for itself. How do you mean I have impeached myself? By resigning. That was a voluntary impeachment. And uh, now what does that mean in terms of whether I... Uh, you're wanting me to say that I am participated in an illegal cover-up? No. Now, when you come to the period, and this is the critical period, when you come to the period of March 21st on, when Dean gave his legal opinion uh, that certain things, actions taken by Haldeman, Ehrlichman, Mitchell, etc., and even by himself, amounted to a legal cover-up and so forth, then I was in a very different position. And during that period, I will admit that I started acting as lawyer for their defense. I will admit that acting as lawyer for their defense, I was not prosecuting the case. I will admit that during that period, rather than acting primarily in my role as the chief and law enforcement officer of the United States of America, or at least with responsibility for law enforcement, because the attorney general is the chief law enforcement officer, but as the one with the chief responsibility for seeing that the laws of the United States are enforced, that I did not meet that responsibility. And to the extent that I did not meet that responsibility, to the extent that within the law, and in some cases going right to the edge of the law in trying to advise Ehrlichman and Haldeman and all the rest as to how best to present their cases because I thought they were legally innocent, that I came to the edge. And under the circumstances, I would have to say that a reasonable person could call that a cover-up. I didn't think of it as a cover-up. I didn't intend it to cover up. Let me say, if I intended to cover up, believe me, I'd have done it. You know how I could have done it so easily? I could have done it immediately after the election simply by giving clemency to everybody. And the whole thing would have gone away. I couldn't do that because I said clemency was wrong. But now we come down to the key point. And let me answer it in my own way about how do I feel about the American people? I mean, uh, how about, uh, whether I should have resigned earlier or what I should say to them now. Well, 
that forces me to rationalize now and give you a carefully prepared crop statement. I didn't expect this question, frankly, though, so I'm not going to give you that, but I can tell you this. Oh, did I? I can tell you this. I think I said it all in one of those moments that that you're not thinking. Sometimes you say the things that are really in your heart. When you're thinking in advance, then you say things that, you know, are tailored to the audience. I had a lot of difficult meetings those last days before I resigned. And, and the most difficult one, and the only one where I broke into tears, frankly, uh, except for that very brief session with Erlingman up at Camp David. It was the first time I cried since Eisenhower died. I met with all of my key supporters just a half hour before going on television. For 25 minutes, we all sat around Oval Office, men that I'd come to Congress with, Democrats and Republicans, about half and half. Wonderful men. At the very end, after saying, well, thank you for all your support during these tough years. Thank you for the, uh, particularly for what you've done to help us end the draft, bring home the POWs, and have a chance for building a generation of peace, which I could see the, the dream that I had possibly being shattered. And thank you for your friendship little acts of friendship over the years, you know, you sort of remembering you with a birthday card and the rest. Then suddenly you haven't got much more to say and half the people around the table were crying. Les Aarons, Illinois, bless him, he was, he was just shaking, sobbing. And uh, I get, just can't stand seeing somebody else cry. And that ended it for me. And I just, well, I must say, I sort of cracked up. Started to cry, pushed my chair back, and then I blurted it out. And I said, I'm sorry. I just hope I haven't left you, let you down. Well, when I said, I just hope I haven't let you down, that said it all. I had. I let down my friends. I let down the country. I let down our system of government and the dreams of all those young people that ought to get into government but will think it's all too corrupt and the rest. Most of all, I let down an opportunity that I would have had for two and a half more years to proceed on great projects and programs for building a lasting peace, which has been my dream, as you know, from our first interview in 1968, before I had any thought I might even win that year. I didn't tell you I didn't think I might win, but I wasn't sure. Yep, I, I, I let the American people down, and I have to carry that burden with me for the rest of my life. My political life is over. I will never yet, never again, 
have an opportunity to serve in any official position. Maybe I can give a little advice from time to time. And so I can only say that in answer to your question, that while technically I did not commit a crime, an impeachable offense, these are legalisms. As far as the handling of this matter is concerned, it was so botched up. I made so many bad judgments. The worst ones, mistakes of the heart rather than the head, as I pointed out. But let me say, a man in that top judge, top job, he's got to have a heart. But his head must always rule his heart. Hello? Mrs. Lewis. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Johnson. Oh. I'm calling to say goodbye. I was going to call you to say goodbye. Announcing American Motors All-American Giveaway. Buy any new Gremlin, Hornet, Matador, or Pacer with factory air and get your choice of valuable All-American gifts. My son bought a Hornet with factory air and got $400 travel on American Airlines. I'm off to the Caribbean. I'm off for Mexico. My son bought an air-conditioned Gremlin. My son also bought a Matador with air and got me $400 in American Tourist or Very Light Luggage. My son also bought a Pacer with air and got me $400 in Americana Hotel Accommodations. And my son's a doctor. Yeah? What specialty? American Motors All-American Giveaway. Good on models with factory air delivered between April 11th and June 10th, 1977. Or ordered by May 10th. See your AMC dealer for details. Mr. President, this is... Uh... This has been more been tough for you. <laughs> well, no, but I was going to say that uh, I feel we've covered a lot of ground. Been through a life almost rather than an interview, and we thank you. This is the world's largest radio network, the Mutual Broadcasting System. microphones on this historic occasion are two nationally known commentators and columnists, Jack Anderson and Jeffrey St. John. Jack Anderson is a Pulitzer Prize winner whose column is published in close to a thousand newspapers across the country. He appears regularly on the Mutual Network. Jeffrey St. John is national correspondence for the Panics newspaper chain. His commentaries are broadcast regularly on the Mutual Network. We'll begin our roundtable discussion and analysis of this first David Frost interview with former President Nixon after these messages. I'm Carl Tucker, president of Saturday Review. Here are some big stories you won't want to miss in upcoming issues. On June 11th, our cover story asks, has the Nixon-Burger Supreme Court abandoned the Constitution? And what about the controversial Equal Rights Amendment? In our June 25th issue, Roger Williams writes, Even more than abortion, the ERA pits woman against woman in numbers never before experienced in the United States. Saturday Review's annual mid-year business report in July probes why American firms get clobbered for handing out payoffs in countries where bribery is a way of life. 
biggest news of all is that you can take advantage of Saturday Review's special introductory half-price offer. Only $9.75 for a full year. Call this toll-free number right now. 800-247-2160. 800-247-2160. To subscribe to Saturday Review for a full year at half-price. Only $9.75. Call now. 800-247-2160. You're listening to a network radio exclusive from the Mutual Broadcasting System. History in the making as David Frost interviews former President Richard M. Nixon on the events that led to the downfall of the Nixon presidency, namely the complexities of Watergate. This Mutual special presentation is truly an historic event as Richard Nixon confronts his past for the first time in almost three years, shedding light on those dark corners of history that, to this point in time, have been burning questions in the minds of the American people. It is indeed one of the most significant occasions in broadcasting history, and it is a network radio exclusive from the Mutual Broadcasting System. Equally exclusive and special will be the highlights of this first interview on Watergate. This exclusive highlight program will be presented by Mutual over many of these same stations tomorrow. Check your local listings. History in the making from Mutual. Uh, Mr. Anderson... Will you start by giving us your overall impression of the first Nixon-Frost interview? I think that I, like most Americans, had hoped that Richard Nixon had learned something from Watergate. That we might uh, have listened to a chastened, a more humble Richard Nixon. Uh, he came across to me as the same Richard Nixon. He could have uh, avoided the Watergate horrors right after the break-in simply by announcing to the American people that some wrong had been done and that he was cleaning house. He could have uh, avoided the problem at any time thereafter. And he never could bring himself to do it. He could never bring himself to admit that, uh, that he was guilty of anything. Uh, and this, you've just heard him say that he accepts the blame. But those are words. He really doesn't believe that he was to blame. He just says that he accepts the blame without really meaning it. And that's the way it comes across. Mr. St. John, what was your overall impression? What useful purpose, if any, do you think the program will serve? Well, first of all, I'm not a prosecutor. I'm not out to prosecute Richard Nixon and to say that he was guilty or not guilty. My overall impression, Mr. Spivak, was the fact that um, I thought that... Uh, I was thinking of the three terms that are used in English jurisprudence. Guilty, not guilty, and not proven. And I would say that Nixon came off by not proving uh, that he was guilty, and the overall impression I got is that everybody is exactly where they were before this broadcast. That uh, I think he probably did some good, and I think that uh, he made his position a lot clearer than he had before. I particularly uh, noticed his stress on motivation. And, of course, uh, he delineated between his own personal failings, as we've just heard, and also the fact that uh, uh, his errors of judgment. Uh, I think his defense was masterful from a legal point of view. Because this is the, what we've just heard is basically the nearest we're going to get to a Richard Nixon trial. And I again say that uh, uh, guilty, not guilty, not proven would be my verdict. Well, is it your uh, judgment uh, that he put himself in a better light 
than before? I think so in terms of, uh, in, the, in the terms that he has, for the first time, explained his position. Uh, I disagree uh, with some of the things that he said, but at the same time, looking at it hopefully objectively, I think he probably did himself uh, more good than he did harm. Mr. Anderson, do you think uh, former President Nixon put himself in a better or a worse light by this performance? No, I think he probably left most Americans about where they were before the broadcast. Those who disagreed with him, I think, probably are going to continue to. And those who believed in him, the, the minority in, of the American people, are probably going to take some heart from what he said. I suppose on the whole, because he got emotional toward the end, that he probably did himself some good. Uh, of course, I couldn't help... Uh, be haunted by by the old checkers speech when he was pouring forth the sincerity there were echoes of that old checkers speech in the back of my mind uh, I try to put it out I want to give him credit for being sincere I'm inclined to think he probably was sincere I'm inclined to believe that that the story as he told it the story as he has now rationalized it the story you just heard him talk about is the story that he believes. And I think that he has to believe it. I think if he if he didn't believe it, that he probably would come apart psychologically. Well, do you think the program revealed anything that is especially new or significant or important? Oh, not not really. There were uh, there were new statements on his part. Uh, there there the statement that he had impeached himself. Uh, the statement that uh, he was finally to blame. Uh, he's never quite put it that clearly, that bluntly before. But uh, before he ever said that he was to blame, uh, he had gone point by point over the uh, whole Watergate business, and he had rejected the blame. He had rejected it point by point. He had refused to accept any guilt or complicity. And but hadn't he really said at one point there that the fault was his since he was at the top, that he had to take the full responsibility? Yes, and again. the fault was his, but again, he didn't really mean it? Again, Larry, I get the impression that he, that he was accepting the responsibility but not the blame. He used the word blame. He said he was accepting the blame. But I had the feeling he, he really didn't mean it because he was rejecting and refusing to accept uh, guilt or complicity or blame on every point that uh, David Frost raised. Now, but I found, it, let's say, John, do you think he no, accepted the blame? No, that he accepted I, I, I guilt? Think, I think uh, that we're, we're, we're beginning uh, this, of course, between now and for the next three months, we're going to go through this. Uh, and everyone either wants Nixon to be exonerated or they want him to accept the blame. Well, I think that's balderdash. I think that the, uh, the case that Nixon present was a skillful case of a lawyer. Uh, and I think that the evidence that he presented uh, was persuasive. Conclusive, no, but persuasive. Um, for, as far as accepting the blame, my God, what do you want, Jack? The guy has, uh, he says in the program that we've just heard, I impeached myself. I brought myself down. And uh, he also says, uh, in effect, uh, um, I am to blame. And what more do you want from him? He said, I mean, he, he, the guy is gone. I mean, how? what Jack Anderson and the other people who have hated Nixon ever since Watergate, what do you want from him? Do you, do you want him to come out and say, yes, I'm to blame and that I'm going to throw myself off the San Francisco Bridge? Is that what you want? Uh, uh, Jeffrey, that, that's pure rhetoric, and you know it. Um, 
I don't hate Richard Nixon. I never did hate Richard Nixon. In fact, I wrote many favorable columns about him. Uh, this is the Nixon line that uh, we're out to get him, that we hated him. On the contrary, I think if you go back over the 1972 campaign, you'll find that he got the most favorable treatment from the press than any uh, recent candidate has ever gotten. Against McGovern, if anybody, if, if anybody had a reason to complain about the press, it should have been George McGovern. The fact is that he said, yes, I accept the blame, but I don't accept it technically. He says, technically, I'm not to blame. Because he doesn't he kept, believe he's technically to blame. He kept insisting, in other words, that he was innocent. Now, here is a man who accepted a pardon from the President of the United States. The pardon was given for any crimes he may have committed. Uh, in my own case, I can't conceive of accepting a pardon for crimes that I knew that I had not committed. Uh, I simply, the, just the acceptance of the pardon and the language that was used when he accepted the pardon was an admission, was no low contender, an admission that he had done something wrong, that he had done something for which he should have accepted a pardon. Having accepted the pardon, I think he might have gone a little bit further with his... So you don't buy the idea that at the end of the program that we've just heard, he said, in effect, that I did not want to put the country through an ordeal. I think that's kind of persuasive. As a matter of fact, there were a great many people... Uh, those that didn't like Nixon that uh, pretty well accepted this, not at uh, not well, the in, program, in, but I mean uh, the, the rationale. In fact, Jeffrey, he did put the country through an ordeal. In fact, uh, in fact he, kept, time put us through an ordeal. he kept putting the country through an ordeal. Excuse me, gentlemen, I must interrupt here. We'll continue our analysis after these messages. Looking for a rent-a-car bargain? Call Econocar, the real bargain in rent-a-cars. Econocar has bargains for weekends, bargains for weekdays, bargains for when your car is in for repairs. Econocar has rent-a-car bargains for visiting relatives and bargains when your son claims a family limousine. Whenever you are stuck without a car, don't get stuck renting one. Call Econocar and drive a real bargain for a change. For Econocar reservations, call toll-free 800-228-1000. That's 800-228-1000. of one of the most significant events in broadcasting history. The first of four 90-minute specials featuring David Frost interviewing former President Richard M. Nixon, a network radio exclusive from the Mutual Broadcasting System. This evening's broadcast concerns Richard Nixon's Waterloo, Watergate. For the first time in almost three years, the 37th President of the United States breaks his public silence and speaks his mind concerning the complexities and confusion surrounding Watergate. He confronts the past with candid thoughts on the break-in, the cover-up, the White House bugging system, and the 18-and-a-half-minute gap. This is truly an historic occasion, and the Mutual Radio Network will present an exclusive and complete rebroadcast of this evening's landmark program, Richard Nixon and Watergate, on Sunday, May 8th, which can be heard over many of these same stations. It's history in the making from Mutual. Let me go back to the, to the program itself. The American people were asked to listen to an hour and a half of, this, of the program. They're going to have three more of them. What does this one contribute? What does this tell us 
that is new either about Nixon or about Watergate? Is it just a performance? Is it just a show? Or is there more to it than that? Now, you start that. I don't know, Larry, whether it contributes any new information. Uh, there were certainly some new statements that we got out of Richard Nixon that we hadn't heard before. But I don't think that there was anything substantive, anything new. But Richard Nixon did at least tell his story for the first time. He was entitled to tell his story for the first time. I disagree. I, th uh, I think there were, were were a number of very substantive things uh, that Nixon said towards the end, particularly the insight that he gave us, whether you agree or disagree with his interpretation of those events, uh, his uh, certainly his conversations with Haldeman and Erdman are new. Uh, they aren't very new. He, he, well, he, he I discussed think those, in the sense that he discussed those at the, in his speech when he dismissed them. But the thing that I think is most valuable about this about this first interview is that Nixon's case is now on the public record. Fight over it, which we're going to fight over, as we're fighting it over here for the next 25, 50, or 100 years. But the fact of the matter is, the first president in the history of this country who left office in disgrace and resigned is now has on the historical record his particular view of this event. And I think that's the value. I, I think we mustn't lose sight of it. Jeffrey, this. are you convinced that he's now told everything of importance about Watergate? Oh, that God, he knows, no, That he knows... No, oh, of course not. No man, uh, uh, I doubt if uh, Andrew that Johnson... the American people ought to know. Well, uh, you're asking me to be a seer, and uh, I don't have a crystal ball. I would say probably, given the nature of politicians, uh, you know, I have no faith in most politicians. I think that they lie by uh, as a matter of character and as a matter of what's-his-name. I'm not insinuating that Mr. K Nixon is lying. I'm merely saying that people, including politicians in particular, hold things back uh, for reasons of history, personal uh, prejudice, and a lot of other things. No, I think that there may be some things that may eventually come out in his book. Remember, we got a commercial problem on our hands here, Larry. Uh, we're dealing with a commercial property that's being presented to the American public uh, and as a consequence uh, there is his book also and it may very well that he is holding back some of the things that he withheld things in this interview that uh, will go into his book. But doesn't that put the whole thing on a pretty low level? I mean, here you have the first president in the history of the nation who, who uh, resigned, who was forced to resign, and he has an opportunity to go before the American people. Now, uh, shouldn't that lead to something? Shouldn't that yield something for history? To answer the main question, no, he didn't reveal very much. Yes, there is a great deal that he could have revealed. Part of the problem was that he wasn't asked the questions. I think if I'd been there, I wanted to know more about the 18-and-a-half-minute tape. Here, uh, a tape was actually uh, erased. There were only four people who had any access to it, one of whom was Richard Nixon. I would have liked to have questioned him in detail about that. That was clearly an act of obstruction of justice. I would have liked to have questioned him about that. I'd have liked to have asked him, since he feels that he technically was not to blame for the Watergate horrors, I would have liked to have questioned him uh, very carefully as to who he thinks was. Before, let me say this, before the broadcast, we were told that David Frost's strategy uh, was deliberately to confront Nixon with new and damaging information. Now, do you think he did that? I, th I think that there was a great deal of quibbling over legal points, a great deal of quibbling over points of fact, a great deal of quoting of obscure passages in the... Uh 
in the transcript. And I think some of us almost got lost. Even those of us who followed it closely, those of us who followed it minutely were getting lost. I think the public at large must have been lost for the first 10 or 15 minutes of the show. Uh, it was hard to, to we were going to have to reread the transcript and, in order to pin down who said what in that uh, first bit. But the ba major questions, I think uh, there were a number of major questions that were not asked and that should have been asked. See, one of the problems that we face in this is that, uh, as I said at the beginning of this uh, critique, that what we're involved in, that this is what we're going, this is the closest thing we are going to get to, the trial of Richard Nixon. And it was conducted with, uh, with a certain amount of a, the air of a, pro of a prosecuting attorney. Um, what I found most significant about the Nixon interview is the fact that he presented his viewpoint, which has been obscured. And I don't understand why it is necessary, and here Frost, I think, did a disservice to the audience. What, what part of his, what part has been obscured about his position? Well, his whole, his whole defense, uh, and that's been his fault to some degree, and the fault of the press. But his defense basically can be summarized in this particular first program, and that defense is simply the fact that I did not commit criminal uh, I did not engage in obstruction of justice that uh, there were errors of judgment uh, etc. No, no, again. but I'm talking about where it's set in, in, in the context of, of the entire half hour in which he was, to, he was given a chance to present his point of view and uh, he said it but has he said it on television well, in any case, he was not very persuasive. After all, uh, some 18, 20 people have been convicted of crimes connected with Watergate. Yes, but the, guilt by the, association, the, the Jack, people, is not something that you that you, uh, people, that you uh, tolerate, right? Well, he, he was actively involved in covering it up. That's a crime. These these acts that were committed in the White House were crimes. They're, See, they're you, proven crimes. The people have been convicted for them. You know, the they've been sent to jail Jack. for them. You know, Jack, people, the people, Well, would you let me finish? People I couldn't like, stop you. People like uh, uh, John Ehrlichman and, and, and uh, Chuck Colson are in prison. People have gone to jail for these crimes. So clearly, uh, when Richard Nixon was covering up, he was covering up crimes. These are, these are clearly crimes. Jack, and he was covering up crimes, and covering up a crime is obstruction of justice. Covering up crime is itself a crime. Jeffrey, I'll come back to you in a minute. I'm sorry to interrupt again. We'll continue our discussion after these messages. David Frost here on Thursday, May 12th. I'll be back on the Mutual Radio Network to continue our series of four historic interviews with the former president. In this program, Nixon will talk about his first meeting with Chairman Mao and his last visit with a dying Chinese leader. We'll take you inside the Kremlin walls for secret sessions with Chairman Brezhnev and to the Middle East at war in 1973 when the U.S. went on that worldwide nuclear alert. Also, a unique Nixon perspective on the fascinating subject of Henry Kissinger. Nixon and the World will air Thursday, May 12 at 7.30, 6.30 Central Daylight Time. Exclusive 10-minute highlight programs throughout the following day. We invite you to join us over many of these mutual stations. Is it your judgment, uh, Jeffrey, that as a result of the Nixon-Frost interviews, Mr. Nixon will convince anyone that his Watergate lies were the result merely of failures of judgment? 
Has he convinced you? No, no. As a matter of fact, uh, I, as I said uh, at the beginning, you see, the difference between Anderson and myself is the fact that I am not prepared to say absolutely that Richard Nixon is culpable of criminal conspiracy because, unfortunately, we have not had a trial. Well, whose fault is that? Isn't that his fault? Of course it's his fault. Yes. But, to, but to blatantly uh, uh, condemn... Uh, as Jack has done, uh, I think is unfair, and I think that uh, it tends to uh, becloud the whole issue. And the issue is simply the fact that Nixon began his conduct in this whole sordid affair uh, by simply assuming that this was a political plot on the part of his enemies. Now, however paranoia that might have seemed, that was his motivation. And he has stuck to this particular contention, and it is a valuable, it is a valid, plausible contention. Now, whether it involves conspiracy and things of criminal nature, I cannot say for certain by reason of the fact that we don't have that sufficient amount of evidence. All we've got is saying that he did did such and such, and he says he didn't. And so we're, le we're left, as I said yep, in the beginning, Jeff, we're Jeffrey. left with not proven. Jeffrey breaking in to... Uh, he didn't break in, Jack. Well, why don't you get the record straight? He didn't break in. How, well, do, you, now, how do you know now, You don't have to shout at us about that. Everybody knows he didn't break in. But breaking but you in... you said it. I did not. I didn't say... Did anyone hear me say that Richard yes. Nixon broke into Watergate? Yeah, is, there in, in. is there anyone in the said, mutual... I think is there breaking, any, breaking I was in. Gonna, I don't know whether you were going to break well, in. I, I was going to talk about the... I was going to talk about the people who did break in. Okay. Now, the, exactly is, there, is there anyone ridiculous enough, Jeffrey, to believe that I've accused Richard Nixon of breaking into Watergate? Could, could it possibly be... No, what I'm saying... Now, what, I've, what, I've, what, I've, uh, what I'm about to say, and what you didn't allow me to say... Oh, Jack, I is that stop is that, that, uh, that the act of the Watergate burglars was a criminal act. Of it course it was a it criminal wasn't, act. Uh, it, may I finish? It was a criminal act. It wasn't some political trickery. It was a criminal act. There have been a number of criminal acts. There has been one criminal act after another. These have been proven in court. People have gone to jail for it. Yeah. When Richard Nixon covers up criminal acts, he's not covering up political acts. He knew the crimes had been committed. He covered up criminal acts. He accepted a pardon. This pardon that Gerald Ford gave him was not for political trickery. It was not for a political cover-up. He took a pardon. He accepted a All pardon right, there was a... for... For the, the, in, in order to avoid prosecution for criminal acts. Jack, the thing is that these cynical criminal conduct, uh, the criminal conduct on the part of these people was engaged in uh, with a cynical motivation because they assumed that this had been done in past administrations, which of course it had, and they figured that they were as justified uh, as... Uh, as uh, well, wait, wait a minute. Who, uh, who, who, who the, broke into in past You know, Jack, that the, the, somebody the, broke into something. Poopin' and snoopin', Jack. You know that it goes on, has gone on in past administration. This is nothing new. What Watergate was nothing new in terms of the actual well, break-in. Let's be specific. Who uh, broke into whose uh, headquarters in the past? And, and my, my, my point is... Well, you made a statement. No, I... I uh, as a matter you, of fact... You, Jeffrey, you keep making... You keep making generalized statements that you can't back well, up. Well, I have now, such a just, wealth of information you to just present, said, and I find it difficult to present it. That's why I have to generalize. Well, you that, just said I, that, uh, that that somebody else uh, before no, Richard I'm Nixon saying committed the same that crime. These what were that happened in the, the dir Who political dirty tricks and things of no crime. Who committed no, crime? No, no, we're not talking. They just got I'm, caught. It would have uh, been gentlemen, criminal. Gentlemen, we're getting nowhere. With that comment from both of you at the same time, I'm afraid our time is up. 
I want to thank Mr. Jack Anderson and Mr. Jeffrey St. John for joining me in this roundtable analysis of the first in a series of historic David Frost interviews with former President Richard M. Nixon on the mutual broadcasting system. I'm Lawrence Spivak in Washington. The preceding roundtable analysis and discussion with host Lawrence Spivak and nationally known commentators and columnists Jack Anderson and Jeffrey St. John has been a presentation of the News and Special Events Department of the Mutual Broadcasting System. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the commentators and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Mutual Broadcasting System or this station. This is John Meyer in Washington inviting you to join us on Sunday, May 8th at 7 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, 6 p.m. Central, and 5 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time for a rebroadcast of the historic Nixon on Watergate interview you have just heard, and again next Thursday, May 12th at this time, for the second Nixon interview with David Frost, entitled Nixon and the World. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Richard Nixon still believes he did not commit a crime or an impeachable offense. Mutual's Peter Gamble reports. The ex-president told interviewer David Frost he almost resigned early in 1973 and felt like he let the American people down. Nixon admitted that during the Watergate scandal he made mistakes and lied and in the end brought himself down. But Nixon adds, if they want me to get down and grovel on the floor, no, never, because I don't believe I should. The nation's Roman Catholic bishops meeting in Chicago have voted to repeal a century-old church law excommunicating Catholics who have divorced or remarried. President Carter has approved sugar subsidies of up to two cents per pound to help the ailing sugar industry, but the president vetoed a lower import quota. Tomorrow, President Carter leaves for his first overseas mission, this one to Europe. This is Comprehensive News from Mutual Radio. I'm Robert Burns. If you suffer occasional attacks of bronchial asthma, listen closely while I take my next breath. That's how fast Broncade Mist gets to your lungs, as fast as your next breath. As fast as your next breath, Broncade Mist gets to where you need it. In seconds, you're breathing easier. Nothing you can buy works faster than Broncade Mist. It gets to your lungs. As fast as your next breath. Broncade Mist. Use only as directed. Sunday is Mother's Day, and Sears can help you make it a day to remember with special Mother's Day values. On sale now at Sears. Ten-cup flavor-fresh drip coffee makers. Deluxe four-quart crockery cookers with removable stoneware vessel and automatic temperature control. And Sears solid-state 14-speed blenders, now with two extra blend and storage jars. Save from 2 to $13, now through Sunday, on special Mother's Day values. Sears remembered, Mama. Shouldn't you? Word that the administration is dropping its opposition to the admission of Vietnam into the U.N. is drawing mixed reaction in Congress. Senators Humphrey and McGovern praise the decision, but John Tower believes there should be more of an accounting for MIAs in Southeast Asia. Phelps Jones of the VFW is also against the move. We see no particular advantage accruing to the United States in giving way so quickly on this matter. We note comparable actions occurring with respect to Cuba, where once again the American self-interest is dubious at best. The commander-in-chief of the Strategic Air Command, General Russell Dougherty, has suffered a heart attack. He is hospitalized at Ellsworth Air Force Base, South Dakota, in serious condition. 
Representative Richard Tonry of Louisiana has resigned from Congress due to possible election fraud. Speaking in New Orleans, Tonry vowed he would win his seat back in a new election. The only way the will of the people can be recognized and the cloud that hangs over the first congressional district can be removed is by rerunning this election. George Meany says labor has no reason to be happy with President Carter. In Washington, Meany charging the administration has pulled back from its economic stimulus program. We don't think the economic stimulus program that it was presented by the Carter administration was adequate to begin with. And we don't think that uh, while, while, there's, while there's some jobs involved, we don't think it's adequate at the present time. Tornadoes in western Missouri have killed three or four persons and injured an undetermined number more. Scores of houses and mobile homes in Pleasant Hill were damaged by one of the series of twisters that touched down in the Kansas City area. You're listening to Mutual News. Heartburn sufferers, all antacids are not alike. Digel is different. You see, trapped gas often churns up with excess stomach acid. That's misery. Plain antacids have nothing to relieve this problem. But Digel adds a special anti-gas medicine to its soothing antacids. This Digel difference means trapped gas breaks up fast as Digel relieves heartburn fast. So get more complete relief. Get the Digel difference. Use only as directed when needed. Digel. 7-Up the Uncola explains the undue process. I'll take a hamburger, fries, and give me a cola. Give me a cola. Stuck in the groove. Then it's time to undo it. To stop skipping over the fresh alternative, 7-Up. The sparkling, fresh 7-Up flavor makes a really refreshing flip side to the colas. So undo it with the Uncola. Because just for the record, it beats going around and around in the same old groove. And give me the Uncola, please. Robert Burns, Mutual News, Washington. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Bring your finances into the 21st century with a My Checking account at Nationwide Bank, powered by Axos. My Checking is designed so you can bank on your terms. This account offers unlimited domestic ATM fee reimbursements, no monthly maintenance fees, and no minimum balance requirements. Nationwide Bank offers Direct Deposit Express, so you can receive your paycheck up to two days earlier. Plus, there's a free app so you can bank on your phone no matter where you are. Open a new My Checking account at krobcollection.com and receive $20. If you are a new Nationwide or Axos Bank customer and deposit $500 into your account within 90 days. Nationwide is on your side with a $20 gift for opening a free My Checking account powered by Axos. Get full details at krobcollection.com. From the K-Rob Collection, this has been Audio Antiques, a program featuring shows from the golden age of American radio. I'm Ken Robinson, and our email address is audioantiques at hkrmail.com. Our music is by HBeats at hbeats330 at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and feel free to subscribe to Audio Antiques from the K-Rob Collection.